Well, let's begin with a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, it is our desire this afternoon to feast upon the Word of God. We desire that you would give us a great appetite to be fed with the bread from heaven, the bread of God, the bread of life. Even your written word, which proclaims your eternal word, the Lord Jesus Christ, the substance of all grace and truth, even the substance of your covenant, the one whom you've given to us as a covenant for the people. We pray that his Holy Spirit would anoint us and illuminate us and that we would be able to see Christ set forth as the image of the invisible God, as the brightness of your glory and the exact image of your person, Father, that we would see your beauty and your glory in his face. We pray in his name. Amen. We're beginning a series of lectures on theology proper, also known as the doctrine of God. And in order for us to, at least to some extent, wrap our minds around this particular aspect of theology, uh, we're going to need a couple of introductory lectures. You can see the handout has something of an outline that I've given you on the front and on the back with some space in between if you'd like to take some notes. Uh, But this is a very important subject, the doctrine of God. It's so important that the name that we give to this aspect of theology is theology itself. So we speak of theology proper, meaning uh, that the proper signification of the term theology is the study knowledge or doctrine of God. We give that title to the whole counsel of God. Every aspect of biblical doctrine falls under the heading of theology, but in particular, uh, when we want to know the doctrine of God, we also use that term, and so we call it theology proper. This is the proper signification of the term theology, to speak of the study, knowledge, or doctrine concerning God and from God. Now, at a certain point, uh, hopefully after a couple of lectures, we'll be able to pivot to some of the categories and aspects of the doctrine of God. Uh, As you can see at the bottom of, uh, well, my outline's different because I don't have room for notes, but um, toward the end of the outline, you see God's existence, his revelation, his names, his attributes, his triunity. These are some of the things that we're going to be considering, God willing, down the road. But before we do that, we need to get a grip on the background of theology itself so that we can know the context in which theology proper needs to take place. So what is theology? The term theology, you can see, includes uh, the, the term or the prefix theo, theos, theos, the Greek word for God, and you can see logos, the Greek word for word or speech or reason or a reasoned discourse. So this word theology actually comes to us in some sense from the phraseology of the New Testament. Uh, A word 
concerning God, the Word of God. And some of our Protestant forefathers, Reformed Protestant forefathers, have referred to theology as a rational discourse concerning God. In other words, the logos, the Word, is the speech, the declaration, and so a rational discourse concerning God. In other words, the biblical doctrine of God, the study, a knowledge or doctrine concerning God, from God. And again, here we're thinking of theology in its broadest sense, the whole counsel of God. Uh, William Perkins has defined theology as the science of living blessedly forever. William Ames called it the science of living for God. So you can see these two elements of science or knowledge on the one hand, intellectual, faith. Uh, On the other hand, life, living blessedly, living for God. And so there's a practical side of theology. Theology is not merely intellectual, but as we'll see in our outline, it is practical as well. It has implications. And so it's not just faith, it's love. And so in many respects, the Reformed view of systematic theology is that theology involves both what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Faith and love, belief and practice. Other Reformed theologians have defined theology in this way. Gerhardus Voss, I think, calls it the science of God. James Henry Thornwell calls it the science of religion. So you can see the emphasis is on knowledge, study, doctrine, but there is a practical side that needs to be involved as well. So what I'm using as a definition, as I've already alluded to, just for simplicity's sake, is the study, knowledge, or doctrine of God. It's not to deny the practical element, but just for our purposes, to keep it simple, a la Thornwell and Voss, the study, knowledge, or doctrine of God. Now, in the scriptures, in the New Testament, the the word theos and logos are brought together numerous times in a way that informs how we're to understand theology. For instance, in Mark chapter 7 and verse 13, the Lord Jesus Christ confronts the Pharisees for following the traditions of men in their religious life. He says that they're making the word of God of no effect through your traditions which you have handed down and many such things you do. So uh, we're told here that they make the word of God, the, the logos, of the theos, they make theology, if we can think of it in that sense. They're making biblical theology of no effect by their tradition. Uh, You can see this phraseology used as well in Luke chapter 8, verse 11, where the seed of God's kingdom, the seed of the gospel, the seed of regeneration is called the word of God, using both of those terms. So theology is at the essence of the gospel, of God's kingdom, of biblical religion, as we saw in the previous proof text. Luke chapter 8, verse 21, so further down in the chapter, Jesus says, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. So if you're a true Christian, you need to be a theologian in that sense. 
uh, Christ's spiritual family consists of those who hear theology, the Word of God, biblical teaching, if you will, and do it. So again, you see that emphasis of faith and love, doctrine and duty. In addition, uh, you can see in Acts 4.31 that the apostles were bold in declaring the Word of God. Same phrase. In fact, all these references are the same way. They elected deacons in Acts chapter 6, verse 2, so that the apostles could continue laboring so that they didn't have to give up laboring in the Word of God in order to serve tables. Acts chapter 18, verse 11, describes the gospel coming to the city of Corinth. And it says, Paul continued there a year and six months, teaching the Word of God among them. So it's not just that preaching involves theology, but in some sense we would associate it even more so with teaching. Paul was teaching theology among them. Teaching the logos of the theos theology. That was his ministry among the Corinthians. Hebrews 4.11 tells us with respect to biblical truth, but specifically in terms of this phrase that represents theology. Hebrews 4.11 or 4.12, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to those, uh, to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So again, yes, we're speaking here of inspired Scripture, but the doctrines that flow from Scripture, in other words, theology, are the Word of God. They carry that weight, that authority, and they hold us accountable before God. So theology is everywhere in the New Testament. Uh, we cannot buy into the modern notion that Christianity is primarily practical and not doctrinal. It's both. Uh, to be a Christian is to be one who studies, hears, and practices true theology. Uh, this is also true of church leadership. Hebrews 13, verse 7, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. It's theoretical, it's intellectual, but it's also practical. Uh, we could go on and on. First Peter 1 calls the word of God that was preached to you the seed of regeneration. Revelation 1, verses 2 and 9, along with Revelation 6, 9, and Revelation 20, verse 4, all tell us that God's believing people were persecuted and slain and imprisoned for the sake of theology, for the sake of the Word of God. Notice it doesn't say for the sake of the gospel message, but then on these other matters that the Scripture addresses, uh, they just caved in. They were willing to give their lives for the Word of God, the theological teaching of the Bible, uh, in all of its comprehensiveness, they were willing to, to give up their lives and be imprisoned for the Word of God, the whole counsel of God. 
So much more could be said there. 1 Timothy 5.17 speaks of ministers of the gospel who are elders that labor in the word and doctrine, the logos, even the teaching of scripture. And so you can see the connection there. Titus 1.9 says something similar. But if we want to know the great significance of theology, we need turn no further than John 17 verse 3 and verse 17. John 17, 3, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So your knowledge of God is of the essence of your salvation. Salvation is to know God savingly. Theology is a part of that. Now, the knowledge spoken of here in John 17, 3 is not merely intellectual knowledge. Right? It's saving knowledge, relational knowledge. Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived. We know God, but we know whom we have believed. In other words, there's a connection between our belief of things about God and our knowledge of God. It's not merely a personal mystical relationship with the unknown God, but our intellectual knowledge about God forms uh, an essential component of our relational, intimate knowledge uh, with God. John 17, verse 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. There we see the importance of Scripture itself, but also the truth of Scripture, the truth as it is in Jesus. Okay? We don't have to quote a Bible verse to speak the truth about God. Okay? Anything that is based in Scripture is His truth, and therefore every doctrine involved in theology is a means by which God sanctifies His people. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself, but 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. So you can see there that true knowledge bears fruit in a saving knowledge of God and a love of God, where we know him and he knows us and we love him. Mere intellectual knowledge simply puffs us up but true knowledge produces a loving relationship with God. That's the, the comprehensive side of the term theology. But it is, in, in its essence, the study, knowledge, or doctrine of God. Now, uh, building on that, or maybe going a little bit beneath that perhaps, we have two aspects of the knowledge of God. There's archetypal knowledge and ectypal knowledge. Now, I realize that sounds very technical, but it's not difficult to see here the distinction that's made and why it's so important. Uh, in terms of the knowledge of God, you either have the archetypal or the original knowledge that God has of Himself. That's the foundational, original sense of the knowledge of God. Even if there had been no universe, God would exist and God would know Himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with an infinite self-knowledge. And so that's the foundational knowledge, the original archetypal knowledge. And you can see this referenced in Scripture 
Matthew 11, verse 27. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Then he goes on, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus here is our theological instructor. He teaches us faith and love, faith working by love. He teaches us doctrine. He, as the eternal Son of God, is the only one with an infinite self-knowledge of God himself. He is the only one who perfectly, comprehensively, infinitely knows the Father and vice versa. So within the Godhead is archetypal knowledge. That's the only knowledge that fully comprehends God himself. Our knowledge is derived. Our knowledge is Jesus meekly and patiently and gently and in some sense humbly instructing us and revealing the knowledge of God to us. No one knows the Father except the Son and the one, the Son, whom the Son wills to reveal Him. So Jesus takes the infinite knowledge of God and He breaks it down into bite-sized chunks and gives them to us and instructs us. And that's, that's the context of that statement there. So we have our typal knowledge, Job 36, 26, Behold, God is great, and we know him not. God is incomprehensible. Can't wrap our minds around him. Uh, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son of God who's in the bosom of the Father has declared him, John 1.18. And it's that declaration of the knowledge of God that is ectypal knowledge, God's self-revelation to the creature. God reveals himself in the face of Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus Christ instructs us patiently, the ones to whom he desires to reveal the knowledge of God. And we're even told, 1 Corinthians 2.11, that who knows the mind of God but the Spirit of God who gives us knowledge of God's truth. So all three persons of the Trinity are revealing that uh, what we call God's self-revelation to the creature, which is evident in those passages that I just mentioned. Now, this ectypal knowledge, this knowledge of the creature concerning God, is seen in a number of ways. First, you have the incarnation itself. Think of Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, the mystery of godliness. He, with his divine nature and with his human mind, had knowledge of God. His incarnate knowledge. Christ's knowledge, as you can see in your notes, as the God-man in his humiliation and exaltation. So Christ, as the mediator, in his divine nature, has infinite knowledge of God. In his human nature, he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man, even during his humiliation. Mark 13, verse 32 tells us that during that humiliation, only the Father knew the day and hour of the second coming of Christ and that neither the angels in heaven nor the Son of God in His humanity knew the day and hour of the second coming. Now, we, we think 
that he knows it now as he's glorified. So there's a progression in his humanity, even in terms of knowledge. But in his human nature, he was limited in his knowledge, and yet he had true knowledge. Even in his humiliation, he had the, the greatest wisdom and knowledge. He's greater than Solomon has come. No one had greater wisdom and insight than Jesus Christ, even walking the earth during his humiliation, and how much more as he is glorified at God's right hand. His human mind does not have infinite knowledge, but it has superior knowledge to any other uh, entity among God's creation. Uh, and of course, his, his divine mind is infinite. So there's that incarnate, it's a mystery of godliness, it's his incarnate knowledge. Secondly, ectypal knowledge by way of glorification. Glorification. So underneath the heights of Christ's superior incarnate knowledge, we have glorified knowledge. Glorification involves God's self-disclosure to saints and angels in heavenly glory. So Matthew 18.10, the angels that look after Christ's little ones always see the face of the heavenly Father. Now, God is invisible. He doesn't have a physical face, okay? God is an infinite spirit. But the fact is this language is used of the most intimate revelation of God's glory. The, what, what we'll look at in a moment as the beatific vision of God, the direct perception of God's glory by the human soul. Uh, it's still ectypal. It's still, in one sense, revealed by God. It's not actually looking upon the divine nature itself in, in a way that's impossible. But it, it, it's, it's the most intimate glimpse of God's glory that can possibly be had, and it's referred to as seeing God's face. The angels have that vision of God's face. And believers who presently see through a glass darkly 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, will one day see, as it were, face to face. Now, pivoting here to the beatific vision, which is the first of two aspects of glorified knowledge, the beatific vision, or the blessed vision, is spoken of, I believe, in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. I don't think this is speaking of seeing Christ face to face. Uh, this is speaking in the same way Jesus does in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 8, the pure in heart shall see God. And, and 1 Corinthians 13, 12 is clearly speaking of seeing as an illustration or, an, or a, a figure of speech for knowing. For we see now in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. So the idea here of seeing is knowing. Knowing God face to face. This language is even used in an anticipatory way when the Bible speaks of Moses interacting with God. God spoke to him as it were face to face, mouth to mouth, directly as one man does to, speaks to his friend. Uh, but in heaven, the saints and angels have this glimpse of the face of God, which means to know Him, the soul perceiving God's attributes in a way that we cannot even imagine at the moment. 
we walk by faith, but then by sight. So the beatific vision, this is often ignored by theologians today, um, but we need to take it very seriously. Revelation 22 verse 4 is not limited to the humanity of Christ. Revelation 22 4, they shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. And you look at the previous verse, there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. Notice God and the Lamb are spoken of in a singular, unified way. The throne of God and the Lamb, singular throne. His servants, singular. The Master there is singular. His servants shall serve Him, singular. So it's not the unique mediatorial glory of Christ that's being spoken of in which we would distinguish between God and Christ. 1 Corinthians 11, the head of every man is Christ and the head of Christ is God. But here, Christ and God are brought together in a singular sense. Therefore, it's referring to the divine nature that they have in common. They shall see His face and His name shall be on their foreheads. That's the beatific vision. But secondly... Glorified knowledge of God includes the mediatorial vision, the face of Jesus Christ with the physical eye. 1 Peter 1 says, though we don't see him, we love him, him that we have not seen. Um, But we're told 1 John 3 verse 2, Beloved, we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Now, some people say, well, but verse 1 is talking about our sonship as the children of God. It's speaking of the Father. But if you look in the context... Back to chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in Him that when He appears, which is clearly speaking of Christ, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. Okay? And then it goes on to speak of God the Father, no doubt. But... In speaking of God as our Father, what it's doing is it's drawing a connection between God as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and now as the children of God when Christ, our elder brother, appears, we'll see Him and we'll be like Him. So in referencing Christ's second coming and our conformity to Christ, it reinforces that we'll be conformed to Him as the firstborn among many brethren, as children of God. And we're told that when He is revealed, we will see Him in such a transformative way that it will in some way play a part in our perfect conformity to Him in body and soul at the resurrection. So there's the mediatorial vision, God's glory in the face of Christ. So we'll know and see with the mind's eye God's glory, but we'll also see it reflected in the Lord Jesus Christ. In some sense, we could even speak of uh, God's children shining like the sun in the kingdom of their heavenly Father, and Christ's glory shines off of us as His image as well. But um, 
That's the twofold sense of glorification. Now, um, in terms of ectypal knowledge, we have the third aspect. We've seen incarnation, glorification, now revelation. And this is the one that we really want to focus on. You'll notice that there's a little note on your note sheet that says that each new subheading is related to the specified heading from the previous section. And so you can see here we've underlined ectypal knowledge and we're, we're making our way through this to eventually get to our subject. And this is the second major thing that we're highlighting here, revelation, because this is the basis of the theology that we're going to be doing. And of course, God's revelation is involved in these other elements, incarnation and glorification, but theologians tend to speak of revelation in this third sense as God's self-disclosure to his creatures on earth. God's self-disclosure to his creatures on earth. We're not before the face of God in heaven with the angels or with the saints of God. We walk by faith, and so we need to be concerning ourselves here and now with God's self-disclosure to his creatures on earth. Now, if you go to John chapter 1, you see how integral this idea of revelation is to John chapter 1. You read the first several verses of John 1, and the whole thing is about revelation. In fact, the emphasis is on Christ as the eternal word of God and as the light in the darkness. This is a beautiful portrayal of God's self-disclosure to his creatures on earth. Let me just read some of these verses. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So Christ is the declaration, the speech, the, the word of God. He is God, and he created the, wor the world with God. God created it through him. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So here you have a light, a revelation of God's truth among men. God's self-disclosure to his creatures on earth. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it or has not overcome it. So here's light shining even in a dark, sinful, depraved world. God's revelation. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. So you have Christ as the word of God, but then he anoints and appoints a preacher of the gospel, a prophet, John the Baptist, who goes forth as a witness, declaring the truth of God. So you have another form of revelation here through the preaching of the word. John was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, meaning Christ, which gives light to every man coming into the world. So now you're, you're seeing this light, this revelation. John's just throwing this concept all over the place. You've got the light of Christ shining in the darkness. You've got the preaching of the gospel through John. You've got the, uh, the light which shines into the heart of every man coming into the world. In other words, the light of natural revelation, the light of nature, as we say, which comes just as much from Jesus Christ as any other form of revelation. He was in the world. So now we've got the Word having become flesh, which he's going to mention later in verse 14. But here you have, 
He, the light, was in the world and the world was made through Him and the world did not know Him. In other words, it should have known Him because it should have seen in Him a reflection of the God who is revealed in nature which was created by and through Him. God's self-disclosure to His creatures on earth. The, The whole thing assumes this. He came to His own and His own did not receive Him. So here's Israel that He exalted with the written Word of God. The Ten Commandments and the, the Old Testament books of the Bible and the glory and the adoption and all of the benefits, all the many means of revelation that God gave to His people. Here, the light of the world, Christ Himself comes to His own people, His own covenant people. This heightened, superior sense of revelation. Uh, caretakers, uh, receivers of the oracles of God, but as many as, sorry, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name. Verse 14, the the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. Verse 17, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And again, verse 18, he, he just, the, the climax here, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. So virtually every aspect of God's self-disclosure to His creatures on earth is somehow incorporated into that opening section of John's Gospel because that's what it's all about. God's revelation. That's why they, well, one of the reasons John was known as the theologian, because he spoke so much about the one who is the logos, uh, who is the theos, the word of God. He spoke so much about Christ as God, as the word who was with God and who was God, that he was called the theologian. And you can see uh, his theology drips with this notion of revelation. Now, in terms of revelation, we have two major aspects. First, natural or general revelation. And this takes place by way of creation, conscience, and cognition, or or our reasoning faculty, our mind, our thoughts. So creation, conscience, and cognition. And it's natural revelation because God created nature the way it is and nature bears testimony. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows forth his handiwork. Uh, We could go to Romans chapter one where it tells us that the natural world that God has created reveals his character, reveals who he is. Chapter one, verse 18 says that The ungodly world suppresses the truth in unrighteousness, but that assumes the truth is being conveyed to them. Verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. So God's glory is reflected in his creation. It reveals his eternal power and Godhead that he made all of these things. We live and move and have our being in him. Paul quotes a pagan poet uh, who makes that point. Acts chapter 17. 
So these things are known and yet largely suppressed. Now, this revelation in creation occurs both before the fall and after the fall. Obviously, Adam and Eve would have had the capacity and would have perfectly, up until their fall, perceived it and reveled in it and glorified God for it. They would have seen his handiwork clearly and directly and not suppressed it in unrighteousness. But then after the fall, again, Romans 1 tells us that that is still the case, that that revelation is occurring in creation. Also in the conscience, uh, Judges 1 verse 7 tells us that when Israel was conquering the land and they ran across Adonai Bezek, one of the pagan kings that was in the land of Canaan, uh, we're told that when they, when they conquered him, if I can find my verse here, when they conquered him, they, verse 6, they pursued and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. You say, what's going on here? Cruel and unusual punishment. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather scraps under my table as I have done, so God has repaid me. There's the light of conscience. Even a wicked, pagan, unchurched king who had no access to the oracles of God knew that when this judgment came upon him, it was because God was judging him for his sins. That was not conversion. That was simply uh, an unconverted person perceiving the light of conscience, which Paul describes in Romans 2, 14 and 15, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. So, the light of conscience, which still exists. Of course, some people, as God judges us more and more, our conscience is seared as a hot iron and we don't perceive our sin and we're more and more blinded to it and hardened against it, which we see at a massive corporate scale in our day. But the light of conscience is still there, even if it's under a bushel. Also, cognition. And uh, I just couldn't resist the alliteration there, but cognition is our thoughts, our reason. These things point us to God himself. God made us to reflect his image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And the fact of the matter is that we reflect him in our intellectual uh, faculties, even in our sinful condition. So here's one example, Psalm 94, verses 8 through 11. Understand you senseless among the people, And you fools, when will you be wise? Now notice he doesn't stop there and say, well then it's pointless to say anything else to you guys because you're foolish and sinful and totally depraved. Uh, Satan has blinded your hearts and so I'm not going to reason with you or present an argument. He doesn't do that. Instead, the psalmist confronts them with a logical argument that appeals to their reasoning faculty because By God's grace, as you see with Paul in Acts 17, God often uses appeals to right reason, again, the scripture being connected with it, but appeals to right reason 
to shock people out of their unbelief, to show the folly of their unbelief. He who planted the ear, shall he not hear? He who formed the eye, shall he not see? In other words, there's a built-in argument from design here. Even, even presuppositionalists can appreciate this, okay? But Because um, it's in the Scripture, right? Uh, he who planted the ear, shall he not hear? Where'd you get your ears from? And if you got them from someone who designed them, you think you have greater powers of perception than he does. He could design your ear but he's not able to perceive what you're saying and listen to what you're, you know, perceive what's going on. He who planted the ear, shall he not hear? He who formed the eye, shall he not see? He who instructs the nations, shall he not correct? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are futile. So there's an argument there from design, an argument from logic. It's biblical. I mean, it's right there in the Bible. It's not untethered from biblical presuppositions, but uh, you can see an appeal to human cognition that, of course, people suppress the truth in unrighteousness, but we still need to confront them with it. Uh, Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. We're wrapping up here, by the way. I said this will be multiple lectures, but... uh, Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Isn't it interesting that when people want to extinguish the light of uh, of the natural revelation of God in their minds, when they want to extinguish a sense of God's existence, it's not their mind that they gravitate to, but their heart. This is not a fool. This fool is not denying God's existence on the basis of objectively legitimate and valid series of reasoning or something like that. It's not on the basis of logic or intellect that he's rejecting God's existence. He says it in his heart because deep down in his heart, he doesn't want to have to answer to God. He doesn't want to have to deal with God's truth, God's revelation. Even though it's clear and apparent and obvious The heavens declare it. The earth declares it. Everything is proclaiming the existence of God. He hides away in his own little subjective, heartfelt feelings. And he rejects God. And he pulls the covers over his head. Uh, There is no God. And uh, it's not intellectual. I mean, the people that are sitting on their couch right now watching television because they don't believe in God, instead of sitting here hearing a lecture on the knowledge of God and all of these logical intellectual distinctions. The people that are sitting on their couch excited about football or whatever, is that because they're so smart and intellectual? Is that because they're so superior and they're saying with their reasoned understanding there is no God? No, it's because they're intellectually lazy and sinful and they are willfully ignorant of God's existence. They suppress it in unrighteousness because of their sinful agenda. So uh, understand, this revelation exists, natural revelation, general revelation. Now we call it general revelation because there are certain things it does not include. In nature, God has not revealed His mercy 
and his forgiveness. He has not revealed the content of what we would call the covenant of grace in nature. He has not revealed that. So you can't just look at the world and come to the conclusion, apart from the Bible, apart from special revelation, supernatural revelation, apart from uh, the preaching of the word, you can't come to the conclusion that God forgives sins. You can come to the conclusion that there is a God who will punish sin, that there's a judgment to come, and that we've all sinned and fall short of God's glory. You can come to those conclusions, but you're never going to reason your way to God's free grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. That's why faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. And we need to send preachers, Romans 10. Because apart from special revelation, there's really no hope provided in scripture for people that, that, don't, that, that all they have is natural revelation. They need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God unto salvation. Also, the doctrine of the Trinity is not revealed in nature, though you could reason your way based on Psalm 94, you could say, well, the God who created us with this faculty or ability to love is himself loving. And if God is love, there must be subject and object. There must be in some sense, a plurality within the Godhead, lest he have no concept of love and mutuality. So you could argue that many have, some people are critical of that and they see that it's, it could lead us in the wrong direction. But I think there's something there to say you could argue from the light of reason that, for instance, the, the Jewish conception of God or the Muslim conception of God is fundamentally flawed because it provides no basis in God for love. And it provides no basis to claim that God is love if he's just this Unitarian hermit in eternity. So the three persons of the Godhead... Uh, provide a, a basis for that. But of course, in nature, we don't, you know, much to the chagrin of uh, St. Patrick and the clovers, there's nothing in nature that reveals that God is three persons. Now, the early church fathers and the medieval scholastics, many of them, in ways that are devotionally edifying, to be quite honest, uh, have tried to look at the nature of man, his mind, his will, his affections, and trying to look at all the, the uh, you know, dissecting human consciousness and different things, they attempt to show that from the light of nature you can discern a trinity, or at least once we hear it in the Bible, it makes sense. Those things are overly speculative, and most of the Reformers did not latch on to those aspects of medieval theology, although some of them appreciated them to an extent. But um, we, we need to be careful with speculation it's general revelation. It's not telling us the nuances of the Trinity or of God's grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. Uh, what we need is something we're going to get to next time, supernatural or special revelation. Supernatural in that God is, as it were, intervening in his course of providence in overseeing and governing nature and all the aspects of the created world. He breaks in with that which is supernatural and that which provides special knowledge concerning things that are not revealed in the light of creation, conscience, and cognition. And we can see in the book of Genesis, the early chapters, that even before there was sin and a need for redemption, there was pre-redemptive special revelation. God reveals the covenant of works with Adam and Eve, and he explains the terms 
Uh, In the day you eat of that forbidden tree, you shall die. Uh, He gives Adam a calling. He unites Adam and Eve in marriage. There's special revelation. God is not a deistic God who sets it all up and then expects Adam and Eve to reason their way toward all these things from the light of nature. But even before the fall, God gives special revelation, speaking directly to them and walking with them. But all the more, uh, we need special revelation in an age of sin and redemption because we have lost the capacity to make much sense or enough sense of natural revelation uh, to make much profit from it. We need special revelation. As Calvin said, it's like spectacles. We can see. It's blurry. You know, without our glasses, it's blurry. Uh, But with special revelation, we can now see clearly the truths of natural revelation and beyond and beyond with the Trinity and the covenant of grace as well. So we'll look at the various forms of special revelation next time. But again, you can see the trajectory here. Um, We're we're going through uh, the nature of revelation, special revelation, and we're going to work our way down to theology and, and what that means for us to study theology proper in particular. Let's pray. Lord God, we give thanks that you have condescended to reveal yourself to us and that you have given us not merely the light of creation which we obscure through our inherent sinfulness but you have also given us the light of your word and you have preserved that word for us so that we can read it and know that it's true and that we can see in it the Lord Jesus Christ Uh, though we cannot see you for you are a spirit Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet in in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can see your face as it were. We can see who you are, and we can know you personally unto eternal life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.